passing out the handouts. Always a risk of uh, people reading further along when you give them handouts, but with with the contents and the amount of content, I just think it's better that you just you get it and uh, you'll understand it most of it better as we go along. The uh, the other thing, so if we run out a little bit, they are making more copies. The second thing is, I do not, uh, I, I think I do want people to read some of this. Um, the intent is probably, the way this is written is going to work better for me if I'm working off what's written on the, on the sheet. And so some thoughts will be, <clears throat> some thoughts will be prompted based on what's read, and then there'll be additional commentary, et cetera. But also at the same time, uh, it may it may inspire some questions that you may have through the process and along the way. Oh, is there plenty of them? Okay. So maybe maybe uh, is it? Can you let Emily know I may not need any more? Whatever she's got might work. So yeah, she may have her. That we're going to be good. Okay, this will give me a pretty good idea for the for the rest of the week so uh tonight we're going to deal with the issue of can people be condemned if they've never heard the name of the lord jesus christ for salvation or unto salvation i think tomorrow we'll deal with the uh blasphemy of the holy spirit issue and then we'll we'll kind of see how we what we do what we deal with with next all of these sessions, they will be recorded. So if, you, if you're reading, that's going to be on the recording. If you ask a question, that's going to be on the recording. We have 80 minutes uh, to do this. And so I, I think we'll get through enough of it. The way I wrote this, the bulk of the argument is at the top. And then there's supporting stuff as we go, as we go through it. So for some reason or another, if we don't get through all of the reading, I'm assuming that uh, we're going to get through the bulk of the argument. It's actually the latter questions that are just more supporting. Uh, I think I start out on the, they prayed and everything already, right? No, nobody prayed? <laughs> Figures. Uh, <laughs> been here since 5 o'clock and nobody prayed. Huh? For food. Jesus, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the opportunity to learn. I know that each of the leaders are praying for their classes and their students. I pray, Lord God, here that we learn some things from you concerning the word, concerning this vital issue in question, but more so that we learn more about your heart toward man. That's the whole issue here is what your heart is toward us, who you created, and the scripture clearly says that you love so help us tonight to understand, help us tonight to walk through maybe some of the questions and concerns we may have about those who may not come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and where, where your heart is even toward them. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Two things I'll just start off with right at the beginning. It's just foundational. Uh, John 14, 6. I think they had more than what we thought, so thank you, Emily. John 14, 6, right there at the top. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And also, so that's a clear statement by Jesus. 
that all of those words, without breaking down every one of those way, truth, and life, certainly define what we would call an uh, eternal experience, way, way unto salvation, way to the Father, truth, which is the only way that we, we can even access um, God, access the gospel, etc., access Christ Jesus himself said that he was truth, and then life, life here, Zoe, being eternity. No man comes to the Father except through me. He's dealing with the whole idea of relational, uh, eternal relationship with the Father. This is a passage when Jesus says, if you, uh, if you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I ask you to believe that. So he's telling the disciples basically what happens after death, after people are no longer seen, because he will no longer be seen by them. So he's dealing with that whole issue. No man comes to the Father except through me. I'm going to the Father. He dealt with that in John 13, and I believe, well, 13 is, yeah, when he said that the only one who's ascending to the Father is one who descended, talking about himself. And so 14, he says, don't sweat that. If you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If, if it wasn't so, I, I would tell you that. I wouldn't tell you that, sorry. But no man, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father. No man gets to where I am. No man gets to see me again except, uh, sorry, no man gets to see the Father who created you except through me. So that's the context of John 14, 6. So he's defining what his role is. We get to the Father, have access to him eternally through Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians 2, 12. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so again, he talks about the pre-Christian condition that everyone who does not have a relationship with Christ um, is in that pre-Christian we would say, if you were looking at evangel- evangelically, but or is in a condition where they have no hope. Now, I, we could spend a lot of time in Ephesians 2 dealing with the very fact uh, that's why we have an absolute emphasis that Christianity is the only way. Not only, not only what I define with you about what Christ does for us for eternal life, but Christianity, um, basing our faith on Christ alone. If it's only through Christ that we have access to God the Father, then any other faith, any other religion that has any other mannerism, mechanism, policy, um, direction, you can go right on down the line, that would lead to any kind of eternal hope has to be false. Has to be false. If if what we believe Jesus is teaching and we, we believe that the Bible is true, does that part make sense to you so far? Everybody all right there? All right, let's go now to Romans and particularly chapter 1. Hopefully you got your Bible or some kind of mechanism because one of the things that Paul did in the book of Romans would, was put the burden on the very idea that Christ, God's manner of saving us, how he addresses 
the whole, or yeah, confronts the whole issue of salvation for those who hear the name of Jesus and those who necessarily have not heard the name of Jesus. Those first two, three chapters of Romans, Paul deals with that. I don't know if he dealt with it from the standpoint of people asking a question or if he just addressed it just in his writing for the reason that he did. Now, I'm going to hit this pretty hard at first and then kind of walk our way through. So I want to look at verse 18. My first statement there is God's power and deity are made known through the created order around us so that men are without excuse. That's the first statement. God's power and deity are made known through the created order around us so that men are without excuse. Now, that's clear to, clear to understand. Look at verse number 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's defining on why there's a reason why God expresses wrath. He expresses wrath, or sorry, uh, the, the manner of, of who God is expressing wrath on. He's expressing wrath against those who have been unrighteous and ungodly, those who have suppressed truth. If you left it at just unrighteous and ungodly, you might simply think that he's talking about people who have sinful acts. But when, when he expresses those who suppress the truth, he's going a little bit further. Verse number 19, for what can be made known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Now, that statement alone is referring to if it's ever since the creation of the world, then who is the them and who is the men that he's talking about? If, this, if, God's, if, if God's attributes, if God's eternal power, if his divine nature, his invisible attributes have been made known from the creation of the world, who is the men and who is the them that God is referring to in this passage? I'll give you one little hint. How about everybody born since creation? What do you think about that one? Y'all all right with that? Anybody got any problems with that? Since this was done before creation, if God revealed himself since creation, is there anybody that's been missed from the time they were born that could have been somehow or another born before creation. So then God revealing himself has, since, has been since creation. So everybody on the planet has been revealed the divine attributes of God. Y'all all right so far? All right. So uh, creation world, and these things have been made known so that they are without excuse. Who would they be? Same people. Everyone born since creation. Verse 21, for although they knew God, who was the they? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Who was the they? But they became futile in their thinking. Who was the they? And their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Now, that's what Paul establishes as a fact of God being a God who, who has revealed himself so that he has the right to judge everyone on the planet. If God cannot be an eternal righteous judge, then he cannot be judge at all. If he cannot be an eternal righteous judge for all mankind, then he cannot be a righteous judge at all. This takes arbitration out of God's judgment. God is absolutely fair in all of his judgment because he judges everyone from the same standard. What is the standard? That my invisible attributes have been made known clearly to all. And now we'll go a little bit further even with his moral uh, law. So then this means a couple of, a couple of things. That with this, with this, not only is, do they receive revelation from God, but the key there, invisible attributes mean that there's revelation about God. We don't just get revelation from God, we get revelation about God. Not only does he reveal himself to us, but he also reveals to us things about him that man can, go, can grab a hold of and believe in. All right? Now, when this, when this is talking about they have rejected him, one of the things that I think it needs to be clear here is that God has given a clear reason on why he can express his wrath. The reason for God's wrath is the rejection of him. Now, I'm going to make this statement and come back and back it up later. Even in dealing with this whole issue of can man be condemned, can somebody be condemned who's never believed in the name or never heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that's not where the condemnation starts. The condemnation doesn't start with them not responding to Jesus. The condemnation starts with them rejecting God. You guys follow the logic in that? Now, believe me, I will slow down at anywhere during the process if you, if you miss it. What God is saying here, now notice he said nothing in here about Jesus yet. He says nothing about Jesus yet. God says, I got every right to pour my wrath upon man who have been revealed my invisible attributes, who have been made, who have, who have come to know that I exist. I have every right to pour my wrath upon them when they yet reject me through the revelation of who I am. That's before we even get to Jesus. You guys following me? Because if you reject God, how in the world are you going to accept Jesus? How are you going to accept him? And so he says, the wrath doesn't begin with the fact that they've rejected Jesus. I can pour out wrath upon those that are ungodly and unrighteous because they've rejected me. All right, we'll back that up a little bit, a little bit more. Uh, The second statement, and you're going to turn to Romans chapter 2 on this. God has written his moral law upon all men's hearts 
so that they are morally responsible before him. So the first statement makes it clear that God makes himself known to everyone. He makes himself known to everyone. The second thing is he also makes his moral law known to us. Go down to verse, we'll start at verse number 12. It's actually 14 through 16 that are actually the the big ones. We'll actually just go to 14 where he makes it more clear. Listen to this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So he's saying those outside of God, Gentile people, not included in the household of faith or in the household of Israel. He's using this language because he's talking to the Romans. They have a clear understanding of the people of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel, those who've accepted Christ, those who know the rudiments and principles of faith, and those that are outsiders. He's saying those that are outsiders that have not been given the law, because remember, the law was given to the Jews. The Jews were the ones that were responsible to make sure we got the law. If they steal, uh, sorry, for when the Jews who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, sorry, if they still do what the law says, they are law to themselves even though they do not have the law. In other words, within them, they've made a determination that they're going to live in a certain manner even without having the law of God given to them. Now, he breaks that down more. They show, what do they prove? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So if they never get the written law that says, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, know God, love God, etc., even if they don't do that, if they've never been given that and still do that, they're proving that the law of God is written on their hearts. God brings every man into the world, and there's not a person brought into this world in which God does not write the law, his law upon their hearts because every one of us are made in the image of God. That's put in every one of us. Now, he goes on a little further. Uh, while their conscience also bears witness. So they got two witnesses. They got the law written on their heart, and they have a conscience that bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. So when they do things, when they act out that's contrary to God's law, there's a conscience that says that they're wrong, and then those conscious, those conflicting thoughts within them lets them know, okay, something is wrong. And then he says this on verse number 16, in verse 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, this is when he gets, this is when he brings Jesus in. Because what he's saying is now every one of them has to go before God for judgment. Everybody has to go before God in judgment. If they have responded to a law, the law of God that they have not been given, and have responded in such a manner that their conscience is clear for what they have been given to know and can stand before God, he says it's by Christ Jesus that they can be excused or confirmed. By Christ Jesus. And I'll tell you why by Christ Jesus in just a moment. But at the same time, if they, have a, if they don't have the written law, 
and yet there's a law written down in their hearts that they rebel against. It's that same rebellion based on what they know is in their heart. It's that same rebellion that will condemn them for not obeying the law written in their hearts. Now, hold that thought. I don't want to leave you hanging, but hold that thought because we're going to pick it up a little bit further. Let's go down to number three. Although God offers eternal life to all who will respond in an appropriate way to God's general revelation in nature and conscience, the sad fact is that rather than worship and serve their creator, people ignore God and flout his moral law. I want you to now go back to verse number seven in chapter two of Romans. Uh, Verse number six, sorry. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The only truth we're talking about so far is the truth that there's a revealed God. The only law that we're talking about is the law that's written in their hearts. And so what he's saying here is, you're asking for notes? Yeah, there's some extras there. So if you see people come in. The only, so he says he's going to render according to each man according to their works. What works? How they responded to the revealed truth of God, the law that's written in their heart, or whether they ex- rejected it and did not accept it, did not respond to it, became self-seeking. And I'll use an illustration here in a little bit. Did not obey the truth, rather obeyed unrighteousness. And then now they have what's left for them is the wrath and fury of God. Now, let me, now this part here, three, uh, four, five, and six, seven, I can move a little quicker and then we'll go down to the objections answering the questions. Number four, the conclusion, all men are under the power of sin. That's Romans 3, 9, 10, and 11, and 12. All men are under the power of sin. I don't think I need to define that. I think everybody here understands that we're born in sin. There is the teaching that some people do not believe in the doctrine of original sin. It's not, you cannot biblically substantiate that. Uh, and, I, and I honestly don't know why totally, um, I don't know what the angle is on that one. I think there's a fear that maybe people have a concern about babies and, you know, them being born and maybe infants dying early. I'm not so sure. But um, it does not take us long. Nobody, I don't think nobody has to tell us Nobody had to tell you that your children sin, right? I mean, you just saw it in them. Them, them rascals come out lying. They do. Crying and carrying on like something wrong with them. They lying from jump. And so all men are under the power of sin. Verse, verse uh, number five, sorry. Paul goes on to explain that no one can redeem himself by means of righteous living. That's also in Romans 19 and 20. You can't redeem yourself by righteous living. That doesn't cut it. Uh, again, don't want to spend all this time in Romans 3, but if, if we have time to go back, I will. Number six, fortunately, however, God has provided a means of escape. Jesus Christ has died for the sins of mankind, thereby satisfying the demands of God's justice and enabling reconciliation with God. By means of his atoning death, salvation is made available as a gift to be received by faith. Now, I think I will get into this a little bit more further, but I want you to understand what Paul is teaching in Romans 3, 21 and 26. Paul is not teaching 
that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is only applicable to those who lived after the crucifixion. Paul is teaching that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is what gives God the authority to judge all mankind by Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because the blood of Jesus does not just cover the sins of people who lived after the cross. The only way that there can be atonement for any sin is by the shedding of blood. We know that from Genesis. So the shedding of blood did not take place until Jesus died on the cross in whatever chapter we first see that in the Gospels. But the blood of Jesus not only had an effect for everybody forward, the blood of Jesus had effect for everybody backwards, you see? And so that's why even when Paul is talking in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, that even those who were before the law and even those under the law, all the way up to Jesus Christ, he can still say if he pours out wrath and fury upon them, it's because of their rejection. And if he accepts them, it's because of Jesus Christ, because the blood cleanses all sin. You guys following? All right. Let me go a little bit further. Number seven, the logic of the New Testament is clear. The universality of sin and uniqueness of Christ's atoning death entail that there is no salvation apart from Christ. There is none. All salvation is through Jesus. All salvation is through Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Christ. As the apostles proclaim, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one under, uh, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So all salvation is through Jesus Christ. Whoever has eternal life, whoever will see in heaven, whether they lived when Moses was alive or Abraham was alive or Job was alive or Peter was alive or Paul was alive, they're all in heaven because of Jesus Christ. Everybody still with me so far? Okay, now let's deal with some of the objections and we'll, we'll get to the folks who've never heard his name. Number one, the allegation that a loving God would not send people to hell. I think everybody's heard that, right? If God is a God of love, why would it send people to hell? Uh, the Bible says that God's will, God wills the salvation of every human being. This is 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And one other thing, uh, one other verse. He desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, both of those statements are New Testament statements, but both of those express the heart of God, not just for people in the New Testament, but for all mankind. From the time that God put Adam and Eve in the garden, it was his desire that everyone had eternity with him. Matter of fact, Ecclesiastes says, talking about all mankind, Ecclesiastes 12, I think it is, 12.4 or 13.4, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's not just some of us. That's not just people who have heard the name of Jesus. 
that's not just people that's read about the crucifixion. God has put eternity in the hearts of all men. What comes with the, with the moral law that God writes in our heart is a desire or an intent for a desire for us to be in community with the one by whom we want to live according to that our consciences may be at peace. Did y'all get that or do I need to bring that down a level? You got it? Let's look at Ezekiel, the Old Testament, because he kind of says the same thing. And in Old Testament passages, and then we'll, Art, we'll get ready to get some folks reading. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is God in the Old Testament, says the Lord God. Does he desire for, for wicked people to die? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. So turn and live. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? Now, let's do some reading, and we'll get to the second objection. Who doesn't mind reading a paragraph at a time? Got one reader. Okay, you want to read that first paragraph? We'll follow along. Make sure it's... Now, you keep raising your hand, and you don't even know, know what you're raising your hand for. You, read, you want me to read the first paragraph? Yeah, where okay. it says, hear God literally. Okay. Here no. God literally pleads with people to turn back from their self, self-destructive course of action and be saved. Thus, in a sense, the biblical God does not send any person to hell. His desire is that everyone be saved, and he seeks to draw all persons to himself. If we make a free and well-informed decision to reject Christ's sacrifice for our sin, then God has no choice but to give us what we deserve. God will not send us to hell, but we shall send ourselves. Our eternal destiny thus lies in our own hands. It is a matter of our free choice where we shall spend eternity. The lost, therefore, are self-condemned. They separate themselves from God, despite God's will and every effort to save them. And God grieves over their loss. That last statement was probably the one that was a clincher. The lost are self-condemned. They separate themselves from God, despite God's will and every effort to save them. And again, we're not just talking about from the cross. We're talking about from God revealing himself, his attributes, his nature from the very beginning, from the very, let let me just give you another illustration that showed God's heart for man, even when they, even when they failed, when he, when after Adam sinned in the garden, what is the first thing God said to him? Adam, where are you? Why did he say, where, where am I? Doesn't God know everything? You think, you think God knew whether he was hiding under an apple tree, pear tree, or crawling underneath a lizard that he knew where he was? It wasn't where he was in geography. Where are you in relationship with me? So, so you, we can preach the grace of God even immediately after Adam's sin. The, the call of the father was, man, where are you? This is relational for us. We're to live together. We're to walk together. We're to spend life together. It shows God's appeal from the very beginning that he wants mankind in relationship. And then we can go right on to the next fella, Cain. 
when Cain allowed that anger to rise up in his heart and commit murder. Now, how did he know that it was wrong? How did he know it was wrong? How did he know that what he had offered to God wasn't right? Can I go back to what I said earlier? How about the moral law that was written in his heart? He knew that there was a difference between what I did. And, and what he did is what a whole lot of folks do. Instead of them being honest with themselves and it's their heart toward God that was wrong, he took it out on his brother. And this is what God told him. He said to him, he went to Cain and he says, if, he says, sin is waiting at the door. But if you do right, it will go well with you. Even then, God didn't lay out a law to him and say, come on, man, you remember the Ten Commandments? Bingo. God said, no, just do right. What was he appealing to? The right that was in his heart because the moral law is written in our hearts. Cain knew how to be right. He knew how to be right because God had revealed it. And he rejected it. And Cain, actually the relationship with God with Adam and the relationship with God with Cain shows us the distinction. It goes one step further, and I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but then God did do something for Adam that he revealed that he does for us. Because even when Adam was in that place to recognize that he had done wrong before God, because he knew he had done wrong immediately, that's why he hid himself. God showed Adam, this is what I do for folks who recognize that they've done wrong against me. He went and shed the blood of an, Adam, of an animal and came and covered Adam and says, now your sin is covered. Did you guys just hear the gospel in there? I know I just did. I just heard it. All right, I need another reader. Next paragraph, even in regard to sin. Who will volunteer? Uh, Jackie? Oh, you had another one here? Sorry, we'll get you the next one. So you got, yeah, go ahead. Do just the one? Yeah, just the one, even in regard to sin. I may have you do two, but let's, okay. let's see how we do on the first one. Let's grade her, Lord. Let's, let's grade her on this reading. Let's see how you do. <laughs> even in regard to sin, we could agree that sins like theft, lying, adultery, and so forth are only of finite consequence and mm-hmm. so only deserve a finite punishment. But these sins are not what separate someone from God. For Christ has died for those sins, and the penalty has been paid. One has only to accept Christ as Savior to be completely free and clean of those sins. Yeah, I think you need to go to the next one. The refusal to accept Christ and his sacrifice seems to be a sin of a different order altogether. For this sin repudiates repudiates God's provision (laughs) for sin and so decisively separates one from God and his salvation. To reject Christ is to reject God himself. And in light of whom God is, this is a sin of infinite gravity Mm -hmm. and proportion and therefore deserves infinite punishment. We should not, therefore, think of hell primarily as punishment for the array of sins of finite consequence, which we have committed, but as the just penalty for a sin of infinite consequence, namely the rejection of God himself. There it is. That's the punishment. That's where the wrath comes in. That's where the fury comes in. It's the, it's the infinite rejection of the almighty God. It's the infinite rejection. For us who've heard Christ, 
of course for us it's initially a rejection of Jesus because that's who we hear about. For those before Christ and before the cross, it's that rejection of the Lord God that in which, in which he's been revealed to them in their hearts. All right? Anybody got questions on that section? Because now I want to talk about the uninformed or the misinformed. Everybody good? Okay. Uh, let's, uh, number two. Uh, well, Jackie, you, you want to read? Okay, I'll read the question and then she'll take the paragraph. This is the second objection. A loving God would not send people to hell because they were uninformed or misinformed about Christ. Now, the reason I want to say uninformed and misinformed, misinformed again because some people, unfortunately, who, who may not be in a setting uh, where they hear a, a true gospel. For example, before the underground church exploded in China, and honestly, even still now, uh, the reason that we train pastors underground, and there are some pastors that, not all pastors there are underground, by the way, but the reason that there is a lot of underground teaching the pastors is because when, when a lot of these um, folks who were kept from hearing the gospel came to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and got saved, a lot of them didn't have Bibles. And so they would go by stories that they heard until somebody was able to either smuggle Bibles in or information got passed down one place to another. So there was a whole lot of, we found out there was a whole lot of people who were pastors, quote unquote, of these underground churches who was teaching people stuff that was completely off. I oftentimes, and this is maybe not the kind of humor that some of y'all know, I oftentimes think about Medea and in, 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 uh, the Tyler Perry. She always telling Bible stories that are completely wrong but sincerely telling them and, and has a point <laughs> with, with that bad stuff. There, there's, there was a whole lot of that going on and still is going on in places because remember what we're still trying to reach now is not every nation. The gospel has gotten to every nation, but not to every people group and dialect. So there's a whole lot of people groups that don't have a written language. And so they're communicating the, what they know of the gospel in their manner by what they understand and not everything is given properly. That's one. But then also we become more and more aware and more conscious of people who are handicapped and mentally handicapped where they don't understand everything cognitively like we do. You can't just exclude them because they don't have the cognitive ability to understand some things from this scripture. What does God do with them? We can't just exclude them. We can't just exclude people who might be in infant stages or adolescent stages or growing stages of life. Again, that don't have all the cognitive skills and abilities to put all this together. So it's not just the uninformed that we're concerned about or the misinformed, but also those who may not have quite the ability to understand like some of us do. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, Jackie, you want to pick up from, from there where it says, according to the Bible. According to the Bible, God does not judge people who have never heard of Christ on the basis of whether they have placed their faith in Christ. Rather, God judges them on the basis of light of God's general relation in revelation, revelation in nature and conscious that they do have. Thus, the offer of Romans 2.7 to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will, he will give eternal life is a bona fide offer of salvation. Okay, go ahead with that next paragraph, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Not okay. I think, I do. 
<laughs> no, you do. I'm just saying you can. Yep. All right, we're on. Yep. This is not to say that people can be saved apart from Christ. Rather, it is to say that the benefits of Christ's atoning death could be applied to people without their conscious knowledge of Christ. Hold on just a second. Did you get that point? This does not say if people, which we're going to give an illustration here in just a minute, by their well-doing, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And we're talking about maybe the bush people. We're talking about people, again, who've never heard the gospel. We're talking about people that we just said, misinformed, uninformed, not able. God can still give them eternal life. God will still give them eternal life is what Romans 2, 7 said. It's a bona fide offer because, again, they're responding to the invisible attributes of God that's been made known to them. They're not suppressing those truths. As a matter of fact, the key here is well-doing seek for glory. In other words, they understand that there is something out there beyond them. They have a consciousness and an understanding that there is a righteousness in this world or right in this world. There is some law that men, you, that men work by. I was talking to Wayne the other day, and he was talking about folks who proclaim themselves that have uh, I don't know if it was atheists we were talking about, but, but basically some of the same folks that call themselves atheists, if you do something to them, they will say, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that to me. Based on what? Wrong based on what? If the, if that's right. If there's no authority that tells us what's right and wrong, how can you ever tell me what's wrong? There is no wrong if there is no authority. Whatever we do, we do. Matter of fact, we don't even need to call it right. It's just what we do. But the reason that they say that they can say that something is wrong, because now they may not think taking somebody's wife is wrong, but they may think you taking a pencil off their desk is wrong. Whatever their moral authority is that they're operating by or have a light of, they'll tell you that that's wrong. The only place they get that moral law is from God. That's the only place where they get it. So whatever moral law is working in the the hearts and lives of people, there is a seeking of glory in some manner. I know that there is a right. I know that there's something working in me, expressing to me that there's someone beyond me. Romans 2, 7 says when people have that and seek for glory beyond them. Uh, let me let me say it exactly the way Romans 2, 7 says it. Well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immor- immortality, where they want to live beyond themselves, he says he will give them eternal life. Now, the reason I stopped, Jackie, for a moment is because, again, n- by no means is this, is this scripture saying that, um, that the benefits, sorry, that people, sorry, a Christ's atoning death could be applied to people without conscious knowledge of Christ. Because as we said earlier, because of the blood of Jesus, whether they've heard about Jesus or not, the basis of their eternal life is that the blood of Jesus has covered their sins also, even if they lived before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. You, you guys all right? That's good. Okay, Jack, you want to carry on? People mentioned in the Old Testament, like Job, who had no conscious knowledge of Christ and were not even members of the covenant family of Israel, and yet clearly enjoyed a personal relationship with God. Many of you know the story of Job. The scripture says, now we believe historically that Job lived at the time of Abraham. That's what we, we believe historically, even though it's later on in your Bible. But we believed he lived during that time. Even though Job, first of all, if that was the case, 
that it was before the time of Abraham, did he have a law? Yes, but not the law of Moses. That's right. Yeah. So he lived before the time of Abraham and the scripture says he went out every day and went before God seeking for the well-being of his children in case they sinned against God. How would he have known that? Except for the moral law that was written in his heart and his conscious awareness that there was a God. And so even in a case like Job, Job didn't have the cross to look forward to, but even if in his understanding of the moral law and that there was a God out there who existed, you remember what Job said? Even in my flesh, I will see my redeemer. I could preach till I go crazy on that because he never saw Jesus, never heard the name Jesus, never heard the word Jesus. As a matter of fact, Job didn't even know there was a devil that existed. All he knew was there is a God out there. Don't know who he is, where he is, don't know his name, but I'm going to respond to what I know about this God in the way that it's revealed unto me. And sooner or later, one of these days, I'm going to see who this God is. I'm going to see him with my own eyes. Uh, Jackie, I think you can go on a little bit further there if you don't mind. Similarly, there could be modern-day Jobs living among that percentage of the world's population which has yet to hear the gospel of Christ. Thus, 1 John 2.2 2 may also apply. 1 John 2.2, 2, I'll read that, and then we'll look at an illustration here. 1 John 2.2, 2. I don't think we're good. Somebody may have it before me. I don't think he does. I got it. First uh, John 2, 2, he is the, I'll just read verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone who has ever lived, Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. Now, let me, let me read uh, the top of page three, and then I'm going to read this illustration. Uh, salvation is universally accessible for anyone who never hears the gospel through God's general revelation in nature and in conscience. And, and again, uh, I'm talking about even people that we talked about earlier, maybe mental handicap, different things that don't have the cognitive abilities. Uh, salvation is universally acceptable to them, accessible to them. So the problem posed by religious diversity cannot be simply that God would not condemn persons who are uninformed or misinformed about Christ. There was a, I'm going to, well, I'm going to read an illustration, but I'm going to tell you a story of of a fellow who his uh, uncle and aunt went to our church for many years. The uncles passed away. And he had a nephew that I'd met who had Down syndrome. And um, he was, although I, I want to say he, he passed away maybe when he was 20-some. Um, uh, never, uh, from, from early birth, he showed, um, he was severely mentally handicapped. I'll, I'll put it that way. Severely mentally handicapped. And one time I was sitting with them and I was talking with them and he was sitting in front of a TV and he was in his 20s at this time. 
And while I was talking to them, he was watching something on TV. I honestly think it was either like a, a Batman movie or a Superman movie, but somebody was, some character must have been acting bad uh, on the TV show. And uh, he never said anything, um, you know, uh, to me per se, and I never heard him say anything while he was watching the show. Then all of a sudden I heard him shout out, that's going to stop when the Son of Man comes. And I turned and I said, what did he just say? And they said, you would be surprised. Anytime he sees somebody doing something bad, what comes out of his mouth, they said, usually what he says is, that's, that's going to end when the son of God returns. But, but they said, usually he'll say something in that manner. I said, where did he get that? They said, we have no idea. No idea. That's going to stop when the son of man comes. So whoever Batman was fighting, Jesus was going to get him. <laughs> Jesus was going to get him. So let me give you another illustration. To illustrate, uh, um, imagine a North American Indian living prior to the arrival of Christian missionaries. Let us call him Walking Bear. I made this story up, so just, just let me go on my folly. Let us suppose that as Walking Bear looks up at the heavens at night and sees the beauty of nature around him, he senses that all this has been made by the Great Spirit. Furthermore, as Walking Bear looks into his own heart, he senses there the moral law, telling him that all men are brothers made by the Great Spirit. And he therefore realizes that we ought to live in love for one another. Based on him living that out in according with revealed truth, Walking Bear, along with us, will receive eternal life. Never heard Jesus, never read a Bible, never heard a Bible. But suppose that instead of worshiping the great spirit and living in love for his own fellow man, Walking Bear ignores the great spirit and creates totems of other spirits that the rather than loving his fellow man, he lives in selfishness and cruelty toward others. In such a case, Walking Bear would be justly condemned before God on the basis of his failure to respond to God's general revelation in nature and conscience. His condemnation is just. His condemnation is not because he rejected the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He never heard it. His condemnation is just because he rejected the revelation of God unto him and instead done things unto himself. Now, that's the summary. Let's hit these facts, and then we're going to get a couple more objections. A, God is all-powerful and all-loving. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. At least I hope so. God is all-powerful and all-loving. Some people never hear the gospel and are lost. Some people never hear the gospel and are saved. In a world where the gospel can be freely heard by a person of free will, there is no guarantee that everybody in such a world would be freely saved. It is possible that in any world of free people which God could create, some people would freely reject his saving grace and be lost. The bottom line of what I'm saying here is this. In a world that God creates where people are free agents, in that world, there's always a possibility that people will reject God, even though he's a loving and all-powerful God that's revealing himself. They still have the ability to reject him. E, we can show positively that it is entirely possible that God is all-powerful and all-loving and that many persons never hear the gospel and are lost. As a good and loving God, God wants as many people as possible to be saved 
and as few as possible to be lost. His desire is still the same, even though he's making every way possible for them to have a relationship with him. That's his desire, but people still can be lost. F, at the same time, it is possible that those who never hear the gospel and are lost would not have believed in it even if they heard it. And we're going to define that a little bit more. Those who have never heard the gospel, it does not mean that if they would have heard it, that they would have given their life to the Lord. Now, before I go any further, there should be a reason on why you know that's true. Because God is all loving and he's all knowing. He's all loving and he's all knowing. If God knew that someone, if they would have lived a little bit longer and would have heard the gospel, that they would have heard it and received it, and God yet condemned them, would he be all loving? Would he be all loving? If God is an all loving God and is an all knowing God. And so it is not possible for someone, if they would have heard, they would have been saved because that takes away the omnipotence and omniscience of the almighty God. It completely takes it out. You cannot have a God who's all-knowing and all-loving and yet say, man, if I'd have just given them three more years, they might have heard the gospel and got saved, but sorry, I'm not giving them no more time and condemned. That takes the props completely under the, underneath the God that we serve. What's that? It's a perfect work. There you go. That's a perfect work. Number three, I think I'm going to need some more readers now. Yeah, because it's getting ready to get long. Some more readers. Who else would, doesn't mind reading? Number three, if God, okay, Mary, I'll read the deal and then we'll, I'll set you up for page four. If God is all knowing, then he knew he would freely, he would freely receive the gospel and he knew who would freely receive the gospel and would not. But then certain very difficult questions arise. Mary, you want to take number one on the top of four or I think that's, yeah, letter one. Why did God not bring the gospel to people who he knew would accept it if they heard it, even though they reject the light of general revelation that they do have? Answer. There are no such people. God in his providence has so arranged the world that those who would respond to the gospel if they heard it do hear it. The sovereign God has so ordered human history that as the gospel spreads out from the first century Palestine, he places people in its path who would believe it if they heard it. Once the gospel reaches a people, God providentially places their persons who he knew would respond to it if they heard it. In his love and mercy, God ensures that no one who would believe the gospel if he heard it is born at a time and place in history where he fails to hear it. There are those who do not respond to God's general revelation in nature and conscience and never hear the gospel who would not respond to it even if they did hear it. Hence, no one is lost because of historical or geographical accident. Anyone who wants to be saved will be saved. Amen. Listen to Acts 17, 24 through 27. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and of earth. Gives all men life and breath 
and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Listen to this. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Listen to this. Listen to what Acts 17 is saying. God has determined when people would live and where they would live. And he did it in such a manner so that from when they live and where they live, they have every ability to reach out to him. Now, Tyrone Jones didn't write that. That's the Bible. That's the book. And so what the scripture is saying here is everyone from where they are, time, season, place, geography, history, every one of them could seek him. As a matter of fact, I like this when when it says God did this so that men would seek him. He did it in such a manner so that God would seek him. I heard Pastor Ralph's message, uh, I believe it was last week, on providence. There, every Listen, I know some of y'all don't like Yuma. You're here by providence. You're here by providence. You can blame it on the Marine Corps. You can blame it on your wife. You can blame it on your husband. You can blame it on whatever you want. It's by providence. God places us in the times that we live and the places that we live all for his purposes. And what we do with that is a determination of whether we're accepting him or rejecting him. Y'all all right with that? And I like what he says, he is not far from each one of us. Each is a plural, all of us. Why is God not far from each one of us? Even if we talk about the aborigine in the bushes of Australia, why is God not far? Because of the invisible attributes of God that's been revealed to mankind, the visible attributes and the moral law that's written in our hearts. No matter where men are, God is right there. God is right there. For in him, we live and move and have our being. This ain't just to believers. Unbelievers, it's in God that they live, move, and have their existence. It's in God. So God is there within every one of us. All right, thank you, Mary. Uh, Who will read the next section? Number two, we got another reader. Okay, got a reader here. I don't know if I know your name. Liz? Do you go to church here, Liz? Oh, God bless you. And that's your husband there? Yes, sir. Ricardo. What's your name? Ricardo, sir. Ricardo. Ricardo and Liz. Did I meet you at the Border Patrol? No. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm legit, sir. That's a good answer. That's, that's a good answer. God bless you. You. <laughs> Why did God even create the world when he knew that so many people would not believe the gospel and be lost? Answer, God wanted to share his love and fellowship with created persons. He knew this meant that many would freely reject him and be lost. But he also knew that many others would freely receive his grace and be saved. The happiness and blessedness of those who would freely embrace his love should not be precluded by those who would freely spurn him. Mm -hmm. Persons who would freely reject God and his love should not be allowed, in effect, to hold a sort of veto power over which worlds God is free to create. In his mercy, God has providentially Mm -hmm. ordered the world to achieve the optimal balance between saved and lost 
by maximizing the number of those who freely accept him and minimizing the number of those who would not. Amen. God has set this thing in such a manner to where basically the bottom line, and I was going to pull the verses in uh, the Old Testament, God always leaves himself a witness. He always has a witness. He always has um, uh, people among people who reveal that they know that there is a God. Number three, who will take that one? Okay, that's, uh, yeah, Kevin? Why did God not create a world? Thank you. (laughs) Why did God not create a world in which everyone freely believes the gospel and is saved? Answer, it may not be feasible for God to create such a world. If such a world were feasible, God would have created it. But given his will to create free creatures, God had to accept that the same that some would freely reject him and his every effort to save them and be lost. For those right. let, uh, let me just stop you there for just a moment. The only answer I know to that is it's just not feasible. And and we could we could look more further in what that does in our relationship with God. If God wants us to have a loving relationship with him, love always has to be free. Love always has to be free. And if, if, the, if my love with God is not a love based on freedom in relationship, then it's not really love at all. And I do not see how it's feasible for God to create a world in which everyone would hear the gospel and would obey him and respond to him if he gives us the freedom to love. And I'll go one step further. If we don't have the freedom to love, then how many freedoms can we really have? How many freedoms can we really have? Because all relationship is defined by that freedom to love. All relationship is. All right. Uh, Let's see. I think I can capture this last paragraph myself. Uh, I went to Yuma High, graduated. For those of us who are Christians, I think that what I've said helps to put the proper perspective on Christian missions. And here's the bottom line. It is our duty as Christians to proclaim the gospel to the whole world, trusting that God has so providentially ordered things that though that through us, the good news will come to persons who God knew would accept it if they heard it. Our compassion toward those, toward those in other world religions is expressed, not in pretending that they are not lost without Christ, but by supporting and making every effort ourselves to communicate to them the life-giving message of Christ. That's the bottom line. I don't spend no time wondering and worrying about folks who I don't know whether they heard the gospel or not. I don't spend no time worrying about them. I don't spend no time questioning them. This is what I know. The God is all loving and the God that's all powerful. Absolutely. And that deals with the whole question of infants, by the way. If you, if you want to get right down to it, that, wasn't, that was one of the things on the options, but people didn't check it. But that deals with infants too. God has, I am not one that believes absolutely and totally and finally, I do not believe we have scriptural precedents to say that every infant is in heaven. I don't believe we have scriptural basis to say that. But this is what I do believe we have scriptural basis to say. And if somebody does think they have scriptural basis, I'm open to hear it. I really am. But, and I really am. 
But this is what I do know that we do have scriptural basis to say. That infant, whether that child lived three minutes, three weeks, or three months, God has placed eternity in their hearts. And he is an eternal and righteous judge and will do what is right and holy and godly toward everyone that he's created. So this is why, if I can even go one step further, this is why at funerals, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about whether the person is in heaven or not in heaven. We don't spend a whole lot of time doing that. We shouldn't anyway. And it, and it gets really funky when you, when you almost feel like you can probably positively say, ain't no way in the world that booger going to heaven. But because God is a God that puts eternity in people's hearts, and because God is a God that will just judge people by the manner in which they responded to him, every person we see in heaven, we can rightly say we see them, and we know them who they are based on who they are, based on being in the same body of Christ because of the blood of Jesus. I'm going to tell you this. There's going to be some folks in heaven that's going to shock you. And there's going to be some of us in heaven looking for some of y'all. <laughs> because God is the one that is the e- e- eternal, uh, sorry, is the final judge of every man's life. And no one, no one is without excuse before the eternal judge. No one is. All right? I think we got done early. I hope that helped you. Tomorrow we'll deal with um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Maybe since the microphone is still floating, is it still around? Anybody got any questions? We got 15 minutes, I think. At least that's what the clock is saying. Any questions? Is that a question, Juan? Yeah, Juan's got a question here. Just one, and then we'll get it to Matt. Yeah. Let me, let's get Matt here first since he's here, Juan, and then we'll drop it back. There you go. So would it be accurate to say that an infant, since the infant was not given the chance to reject God, would go to heaven because of his grace and mercy? I would say it would be fair to say that God is a God of love and grace and mercy and absolutely knows what he's going to do with that infant. That would be safe to say. Okay. Yeah. Now, I, for a lot of people, this is a heart issue, and I get it. Just like it's a heart issue for me, and it is for infants too, but mentally handicapped people. That's a heart issue for me. And that's why we have to trust. See, I don't put the, ment- the 40-year-old mentally handicapped person in a different category than the, th- than the three-month-old infant. They're in the same category. To me, they are. And God is the one that, that knows. Now, if we, if we say that every infant born is in heaven, then this is what, then we don't believe in original sin. We don't believe in original sin if you believe that every infant born is in heaven. Now, mind you, and the Lord is my witness, I'm not saying they're not. What I'm saying is biblically, we cannot say that and prove it biblically. We can't say it and prove it biblically. There's no scripture that tells us at all that every infant child is in heaven. There's no, nowhere that says it. So, 
the heart part of us is if we believe that every infant is in heaven, no matter what, then we don't believe in original sin. And I'm a firm believer that every one of us is born in sin. Every one of us. The first time that child cracks that womb, that child is born in sin. The very nature of the child is born in sin. But being born in sin does not keep that infant from eternity. You, you all right with that? Okay. Think one. And, and let, can I do, while, you, while you're taking that, can I tell you what God's heart is about it? God loves a 78-year-old who has been a jackass all his life as much as he loves the infant that's lived 78 minutes. He absolutely does. He has no more desire for the infant that's lived 78 minutes to come to Christ, to be saved, to have eternal life with him as he does a 78-year-old man. There's no distinction for him. No distinction. Does that make sense to everybody? So the heart issue for us is not trying to settle with our heart and make peace with ourselves on who who is in heaven and who's not. The heart issue is for us is to get in line with God. Our heart desire is for every man to be saved. We get in line with him and let him do what he does. One. Uh, can you explain to me Matthew nineteen fourteen, please? Oh, gee. One. <laughs> Let me see. Yeah. In Spanish. Oh, all right. Yeah, that's a good one. He says, then little children, this is 19, 13, and 14. Then little children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray that disciples rebuke the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he's laid his hands on them. That's a very good one and a very easy one. Remember in that culture, they looked at children as less than people who could have a relationship with God. That was as simple as that. So whenever the children wanted to get to Jesus, and they thought the same thing about people who, like blind Bartimaeus. They thought the same thing about people who were, uh, had handicaps and abuses and et cetera. They would, they would say no. So Jesus was saying to them, no, 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 no. The kingdom of heaven is open to them just like it is for everybody else. So he's not making a statement about eternity. He's just saying for such even is given the kingdom of heaven just like is given to us. Man, I thought you was coming with a hard one. <laughs> I thought you was coming with a hard one. Now, if you need a little help with the infant deal, let me give you just a little bit of help. The one verse that I love to rest on when it comes to the infant deal, and you might remember this story. Remember David had a child. He had a child by, what was the woman's name? Bathsheba. The first child by Bathsheba. And the child died. The scripture says David fasted. For that child, yeah, child was sick. David hoped that the child was dying, but the Lord had already told him, the child's, it, you're going to lose the child. They said when he woke, when, he, when, they, when they gave him word that the child, was, child died, he got up, washed himself, and was ready to eat. And they, they didn't understand, why is it that you were in such mourning while the child was sick, but you seem to be fine now that your child has passed? David said something that was absolutely profound and something that I've used oftentimes when I'm ministering to people for the sake of pointing them to the same hope. 
not for the sake of telling them anything other, because oftentimes people have lost infants and the parents don't have no hope in eternal, in, in eternal God and Savior. But for the sake of them being pointed to this, David said, the child cannot come back to me, but I can go to the child. So David spoke as if he knew there was an eternity for that child. And so he said, I can go to the child, but the child can't come to me. So that may help you. Any, anybody else? Uh, yeah, I got David DeAnda and then uh, Josie back there. Let, her, let him get Josie first since that's closer. David, is that all right? No, Josie, right here. See me out too. Josie, you want to? There you go. Well, you need a mic. Okay. Uh, going back to the newborn babies. I, mm. I understood that much. But what about the baby that is stillborn? Uh, I actually don't know. I don't know much about that scientifically. I don't know if the child ever lived. I don't know, really. I, I wondered about that because my oldest was stillborn. Yeah. But yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust the same principle that God, that God is the one. Yeah, I don't really know. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's a good question. There's another couple of good questions on certain things that are like not to throw a curve in everything, but you know the scripture says God created man, male, and female. Then there's those born with both sex organs. That's a tough one. I don't know what to do with them. And I don't mean that in the wrong sense, but I mean, I, I'm just, I don't, I just, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Pastor, uh, Peter, Peter said that Christ descended and he preached to those prisoners oh, who had yeah. died in the flood. There are those who believe that uh, it was for the purpose of them being saved. Just uh, give us some info on that. Mm-hmm. I, it's a tough passage. It's actually in 1 Peter 4 and 3 and 4. Um, I studied this out, David, when I was, I mean, I wasn't pastor and I was a very young man. And the, when you deal with the language of it, um, do you know what exactly? It's First Peter three or four, isn't it? Three eighteen. Okay. First Peter three eighteen. Yeah. So for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went. And proclaim to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were uh, brought safely through water. The, the language there, it is, it is the word proclamation. Um, and it seems to me that what Peter was saying was is that Christ proclaimed a witness of the fact because there's a verse, and I think it's in chapter 4, that talks about Noah preached for the spirit of Christ. Uh, The passage seems to imply that the Lord was a living witness that what Noah preached to you was true. That there was a judgment coming. Obviously, you've realized it was a judgment. It wasn't anything he made up. And it was I that gave him the power, authority, gifting, whatever, to preach about an obedience unto the almighty God. It's more like a witness, not to give them a second chance, not to tell them, hey, y'all blew it. 
because there's nowhere in scripture where we see any indication where anybody gets a second chance. The church that I came out of, they preached this as being the only people on the planet that had a second chance. And the scriptures, it doesn't break down that way. It's more like a witness. I am the one by whom Noah told you you needed to obey the almighty God. More like a proclamation of witness. It is me that he preached about. So that's my best guess. Ralph's had an explanation on that. Ralph probably preached that passage a hundred times. Straighten us out, brother. No, 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 not that. Back to the infants. <laughs> okay. It says, the Bible says that he knew you before you were formed. There you in go. In your mother's womb. And so that's we're back. To, I, I, I agree back with your answer. Back to the stillbirth even, right? We're back to the mercy of God. There you go. His love. And, and we're believers. Amen. We're believers. Amen. So what we've been praying about, what we've been praying for, I believe, I tell people, well, I don't know, Pastor, if they went to heaven or not. I said, what have you been praying Mm-hmm. That's well, it's good. in God's hands, so believe. You're a believer, you believe. You Why go. would we do the opposite? That's very good. I love that. And, and I do believe that, that, that there, there's a couple of passages that really should give us the ability to stand strong on faith. And one of, there's so many times the scripture talks about the whole household being saved. Those are scriptures that we need to stand on. I mean stand on. That God is able to save the whole household. You pray in faith, you seek in faith, you believe in faith, you trust in faith. I just believe God's able to do it. And, uh, and we, we, we stand on those. And, but I will tell you this. I will tell you this. When you get to heaven, there is no disappointment about who's not there. Why do I know that? Because there's no sorrow in heaven. There is no disappointment. You're not going to show up in heaven and say, oh, come on. Pastor Tyrone's not. Matter of fact, some folks may say, Pastor Tyrone's not here. But you're not going to get to heaven and be disappointed. There's no sorrow. There's no tears. None of that. We're one body. We're one body, a celebratory, rejoicing body. And when we get to heaven, we are rejoicing because we, we are part of the family who have eternal life with him. There's no consciousness of those who are not there. No consciousness. They won't be missed. Won't be missed. I say they like we know who they are. I don't know who they are, but y'all know what I'm saying. They, they you know, we're not going to be in deep sorrow about who's not in heaven. We rejoice over who's there. Uh, Wayne? No, we got two. Oh, somebody just said that. No, they do. We got two minutes. So we live in, in a postmodern society where uh, there's a million truths, mm-hmm. uh, especially the like the college academia, uh, the college campuses, even the, the professors, most of them anyway, preach this postmodern uh, whatever you believe is true. Mm-hmm. Yet you started by saying uh, you you quoted John fourteen, which mm-hmm. is an absolute. absolute. How do we as as believers have conversations with these these people who who kind of are living under this postmodern way That's of thinking? Good. That's very good. I um, there's a couple of things that I suggest, and by no means would I would say I would be an expert. But for us nowadays, honestly. It takes two things, probably more than we've expressed before. 
One is a listening ear and a compassionate heart because we need to hear what they're saying because no matter what they believe, Wayne, they're going to run up against the truth somewhere in their talking and believing. They're going to run up against it. A lot of them talk, and a lot of them can out-talk me, uh, talk out-talk us, because they are sharp and they're academic. And they're, they're nowadays, a lot of them are taught how to think in a manner to the things they're shooting at you. If, you, if, if you're not grounded in truth, they can knock you off guard with human reasoning because they give such solid, good arguments. But I just say, listen to them long enough, have enough heart to know if they're trying to defend something that's against God, then A, they need a...